Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have a three-part series for you with fabulous Mike Davis, who is a client of Aspect Legal, who's been on an interesting journey for the last 41 years. In this three-part series, we investigate his business journey. We look at his growth from a single employee to building a business with 50 employees and winning the Australian Telstra Small Business of the Year Award. Then going through the process of exit and then acquisition all again, building up another company and then ultimately leading to another exit. And this winds up with Mike now in the new place that he's not quite yet retired because Mike is not the kind of guy that retires easily. So this is a fabulous story of Mike Davis's zero to hero story that has a number of key takeaways. And I think it's really useful listening, whether you're just starting out in business, whether you're gearing up for sale one day, whether you're in the middle of growth, whether you're looking at bringing on board partners and other equity holders into the business, because boy, do we drill into that in quite a bit of detail. Or indeed, if you're at the point of exit, because this three-part series has just got so much in it, no matter where you are at in your business journey. Now, in this episode, part one, we dig into Mike's formative years in the business to understand how to deal with growth, leadership and management. We also talk about the consequences of not having a shareholders agreement, and we discuss how you can achieve success when entering into an earnout. So buckle in and here we go with our episode with Mike. Mike, I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on today to the Deal Room podcast. I am so grateful for you giving up your time. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Great, Mike. Well, look, um, I think probably the best place for us to start, and there's so many things that I want to traverse today. I want to understand your feelings about the sale process and, and, you know, what you wish you had have known in advance and, you, you know, all of those things so that we can talk uh, to our audience about what it feels like when they're at exit. But um, but I'd like to start maybe back a little bit. Maybe if you can take us through a little bit of the history of your business. Let's start there, Mike. Well, really, really the history started way back when I was about 16. Wow. And, wow. and I, I completed an electrical apprenticeship in a, uh, in a company in Wollongong in New South Wales. Yeah. Uh, which uh, was involved in the repair of electric motors. Yep. And uh, I spent five years as an apprentice and they they burnt me out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you're a burnt uh, out. You said you started at 16 and yes. then you worked for five years. So by 21, that's it, you were burnt out and ready for retirement. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was burnt out and ready to leave that that uh, trade. And I enlisted right. in the RAAF. Yep. And wow. uh, I actually learnt in the RAAF the importance of discipline around engineering and how you conducted yourself. Yeah, right. And problem solving. Yeah, right. And, and after three years and the arrival of... Uh, 
Gough Whitlam, he gave us opportunity to exit the RAAF, which I right. did. Right. <laughs> I call those my formative years. Your formative years. Okay. I love it. I love it. And, and I guess, you know, it is the case. I speak to lots of business owners that have, you know, run very successful businesses. And quite often there is this, I mean, for everyone, there's this this period of training where you do all sorts of different things, but all of those different elements arm you in perhaps many different ways for that evolution of being able, uh, you know, to build your own business in that space. Yes. And and what did you, so looking back on those years from that perspective, what were the things that you got out of those early, was it that early 10-year period that, you know, really set you up for future business ownership, entrepreneurship? Well, I think it was in my DNA because my dad insisted that all his sons did a trade. Right. Got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, there I was with this qualification, but there was a, a major interruption in my life when I was around 25. I got married. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure you're watching mine. <laughs> a reference and, is an interruption. <laughs> well, my, my wife was a medical practitioner, so I became... Uh, second string to relationship. Right, got it. And uh-huh. I had to get had to go and get a real job. Right. <laughs> and so where did you go then? I, I went to university, studied uh, education and uh-huh. went te- and went teaching. Right. And taught maths and physics in uh, Australia and New Zealand for uh, uh, six years. Mm-hmm. And then we landed back in this lovely place called the Hunter Valley, oh, Newcastle. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have a job. I had a a pregnant wife. We didn't have a house Mm. at that stage. And I made an announcement one day that I was going to go back to where I started. Mm -hmm. And I established a company repairing electric motors. Oh, wow. And what year was this, Mike? It's 1981. 1981. And so this this is when the business was born. Yes. This is when the real journey started. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you remember some of those struggles when you're first starting the oh, business? Vividly. I remember imposters out in the community that I was dealing with. Right. Who, who suggested you weren't good enough, you haven't been in business long enough yeah. to do our work, we can't entrust you to it. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the bank manager uh, going to the bank and saying I needed a loan to... Uh, buy some stock for this business. Mm. And I walked out of the bank with a $2,000 bank card. Wow. (laughs) So that was the only finance that they had to offer you at the time, a $2,000 bank card. (laughs) I had to finance it out of savings and cash flow. Yeah. Uh, But it's actually interesting in business when you're a sole trader at that stage, which I was, you can use those negatives to motivate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I had huge motivation from that. I had the energy yeah, and you needed it because I had to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and do invoicing. Wow. Because I needed the daylight to do the work. Yeah, yeah. I fed and, and energised myself off the negatives mm. to turn them into the positive. And the major positive I had was I'm going to show them. Yeah, right. I love I, that. I'm going to make this work. Yeah. And, yeah. and I did. We took that business within 10 years from one guy to 50 employees. Wow. To Australian Small Business of the Year. Wow. To our business recognised in the federal parliament. 
by winning an Australian Quality Award, and that's where the RAAF discipline came in. I mm. structured the discipline shop, mm. and 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 bear in mind this industry I was in it was a cottage industry, mm. essentially run by artisans. They weren't real business peoples or corporations in beside these type mm. of companies at that time. Mm. And so I had a recipe there, at, and we were famous, but, uh, you know, you had burnout. There's only a limit to what a human can do. Oh, of course, absolutely. And, look, that's uh, that's huge growth from one to 50 employees, and there's a massive mindset shift that has to happen there along the way because, you know, clearly as the one, you were doing everything. As you said, you are getting up at 4 a.m. and invoicing, and then, you know, along the way to 50 um, you know, generally what happens is you go from doing the work to being the manager to then mm. ultimately stepping back and working out, you know, how to find managers to manage. So can can you tell me a little bit about that process and, and how how you navigated understanding how to deal with growth, to deal with leadership and management? Well, that was uh, difficultly because with 50 people, you can't be a sole trader. You've got to be a team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've got to be able to choose the right people. Yeah. And on a technical level, I was fine with that. Mm. And on a sales level, because essentially I took a role of being the salesperson and the evangelist for the business. Mm. But on the commercial side, we always floundered a little yeah, right. And and that's where I was at a crossroads. Do I employ an accountant? Yeah. And I spoke this over with my accountant, who we had at that time, and he said, no, I'll buy into the business. Oh, right. Wow. Okay. And the accountant bought into the business, but that changed the chemistry of the business. Right. In what way? And so until that point, until the accountant bought in, it had been you holding all of the equity and making all the major decisions in the business. Yes. Is that right? Yes, yes. And 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 he made decisions, but for staff it wasn't the same. And he so brought a level of uh, accountability. He brought accountability. Got it. It wasn't the same sort of from a positive perspective as in he brought this a better level of accountability. Is that what you mean? He brought a level of accountability. I wouldn't want to put a, an adjective <laughs> anywhere there. And, and tell me, where do we move from percentage? So so you owned 100% and then what, what percentage did the accountant own as he came in? 30%. 30%. Okay, got it. All right. Okay. And how did that feel moving from, and, and sorry, how many years into the business was that? 10 years. 10 years. Okay. And I know, you, you know, many, many, many business owners who who will run the race of growth on their own for many years and, and then get either the business gets to a particular size where, where they feel they need other people um, around to share some of this uh, responsibility um, or, or perhaps provide, you know, cash flow for the business or whatever the reasons are for bringing on partners um, or that they need an extra skill set. But often the reality of partnerships is different than the idea behind them. And, you know, sometimes that can be really hard when you've run your own race for such a long period of time, that decade. What was that like for you? Uh, it, it was hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for a start, surrendering equity in the early days was based on a good feeling. Yeah. 
I sat back and felt this is fantastic. I'm going to get all this opportunity and help. Yeah. In the business now, we're just going to go go to the stars with this business. Yeah. And in reality, it actually put a glass ceiling on where we went. Really? And why? Talk talk through that. We became uh, so inwardly looking around the processes that were being developed. Right. That we forgot who funds the business. It's not the owner, it's the customers who fund the business. Yeah, right. Okay. So I guess you would say then that partly that decision about bringing in equity partners, you have to be really clear about what you want that focus in the business to be and to drive who it is that you bring on board because in this sense you brought on board someone who... Who, who was, I'm presuming because they're an accountant, there's someone who was good at looking at figures and, you know, looking at that side of things. Um, yeah. And, and is that what you wanted from him? Like what was the... Yeah, I wanted to get up at 6am, not 4am. <laughs> but presumably you already had uh, staff by this point. Is that right? So at, fifth, at, at the 10 years, how large were you at that point? It, uh, in terms of revenue? Well, oh, 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 in terms of, I guess, staff. employees. Yeah, oh, you 50. were at 50 staff at yes, that point. Yeah. Right, got it. Okay. All so right. so uh, uh, there was significant worry about having that level of staff, meeting yep. payroll each week, uh, collecting yep. cash and all yep. those everyday things. And on top of that, uh, being, being a technical guy, being involved in the technical operations of the business, and it wasn't something that I was prepared to give away and dilute yeah. any of the quality of what went out the door. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, some of these uh, machines we were working on were, could break the business Yeah, if we got it wrong. Yeah. And h- how did you navigate at that point, you know, the idea of how this would work together? Did you sit down and, and create a bit of a game plan of, you know, what happens if we don't agree? Who's going to make decisions about each of these areas? How might we exit if one person, you know, um, doesn't agree with the other? There was no uh, business plan. Yeah, yeah. And there was no shareholders agreement. Yeah. And that's so common, isn't it? It's just so common, Mike. It is absolutely, you know, massively common. I I actually held a webinar on this very topic quite recently. And um, and more than 80% of um, people who are attending didn't have a shareholders agreement in their business. In fact, I've run a number of them. Some some of the webinars have better figures than than others, but it's just it's indicative of the fact that it's a reality that I think certainly probably fair to say majority of businesses don't have either don't have any shareholders agreement or B don't have sort of a comprehensive, you know, fit for purpose uh, shareholders agreement for where they are right now. Um, and I have lots of ideas about why I think that's the case, but maybe can you just tell me reflecting back, you know, why is it that you don't have a shareholders agreement? And and I ask this on the basis that I think it's useful for to be able to reflect back because whatever the reasons are for or were for you then are the exact reasons why many of the businesses who will be listening in today haven't got one in place at the moment. So, you know, it's great to reflect. Well, well when we seek that sort of participation, expand, uh, get rid of equity and bring partners in, that's mm-hmm. generally done on a, a, a bottle of red wine and dinner. <laughs> 
say that's that's a more unique answer than I've had in the past. I love yeah. it, of course. <laughs> you know, it's feeling, it's amazing. Yeah, it's done on it's done, it's probably the emotion in reality, isn't it? It's yes. that feeling of trust. Um yeah. and you know, the belief in a future vision together, and perhaps not the time to sit down and unpick, you know, what the detail is behind that. And perhaps sometimes from a fear that it will create disagreement right from the beginning, maybe. Well, I don't know. It's probably best in hindsight to have the disagreement at the beginning. Oh, 100%, Mike. Yes. So that you can actually fashion your shareholder agreement to accommodate it in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you're happy to talk about it and, you know, don't if you don't want to, but if you're happy to reflect on the the consequences of not having a shareholders agreement, what would you say they are? Well, that came home to me later on when we mm. did have a shareholders agreement, but we'll talk about then the fact that <laughs> the, the fact that you don't have a shareholders agreement leaves you exposed. Yeah. Yeah, it leads. There's no rules in place. There's no boundaries in place, mm. and there's no recipe. If it turns to to cheese the whole deal, yeah. how you how you exit and how it happens. Yeah, uh, and that happened to me in my first business. That that award winning company mm. had a very ordinary breakup of the partnership and an exit. Did it? And what happened there? Talk us about uh, what happened. There was a third third investor bought in to mm. uh, prop cash up in the business mm. because of this glass ceiling and this failure to growth, but a very high cross structure sitting underneath it. Mm. We were profitable, but we weren't profitable enough. Right. Uh, you know, profitable to meet the probably the needs of a sole trader, but not right. a company running 50 staff and yeah. having corporate clients across Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So, and that must have been disappointing given you brought an accountant on board. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. <laughs> so we sought trade sales mm-hmm. and we eventually sold the company or and probably undersold the company. Right. To a listed Singaporean company. Right. So I didn't know this element. Right. Okay. So you'd had this uh, this original sale. And and when was that? What year was that that you sold? That, that was 1997. 1997. So at that point, you'd had the business for what, 16 years? 16 right? years, yes. 16 years. Okay. So 10 years on your own, six with a business yep. partner at play, these issues appearing. And and by the time you sold it, you had the third business partner as well, it sounds like. So you had the three. Yeah, yeah there was a, a, a silent partner, a silent partner. Uh, who, who was there. Great. And, okay. and we sold that business off to the single, listed Singaporean company. Uh-huh. And uh, I stayed on uh, to work out my non-compete. Yep. And uh, it, I, I felt like Job on the ash heap for three years. <laughs> and I want to talk about that because that's a super common feeling. So so can can you dig into that a little bit more? What why? What why did you feel like that? What what happened? Take us back to what you're feeling then and, and why it all changed for you so much. Well, listed uh, Singaporean based companies uh, really don't care how you do it, quite frankly, as long as the cash flows in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was huge pressure to get cash in every month. Mm. And were and you that, on an earnout at that point? Were you? Was yeah. Well, I, I I sold my component of the shareholders for cash and script. 
Right, I see. So I, I had script in the company. I still have script in that company right. uh, today because it cost me more to cash it at the moment. Right, okay, all right. So on reflection, uh, maybe taking it all as cash would have been a good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just be careful if you buy script. Yeah, yeah. Like well, you're talking to a guy here who's done everything wrong and is a slow learner when it comes, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to commercial stuff. <laughs> but, you know, isn't that the way, though, Mike? I mean, you know, and, and I say this coming from the position of being, a you know, a business owner myself. I think, um, you know, business owners who, who are able to get the most ultimately you know, may, maybe even satisfaction, fulfillment. I don't. I don't know. At the end of the day, you you don't do that without making a hell of a lot of mistakes along the way. It's just part of business, isn't it? You know, yeah, well, when they say ab- fail fast. Yes, that's right. <laughs> ab- absolutely. But what you've got to do is uh, get hold of some positives. Yeah, a hundred percent in the process. That's yeah. what you've got to focus on. Well, and it turns out that that three years of non-compete was probably the best three years I had in developing my ability to read a balance sheet, to yeah, know what right. a PL is really about, right, and to be able to do a cash flow. So it was like a so financial masterclass a, for three yeah, years. <laughs> a, a, a financial boot. Camp for three camp. Years. Okay, I like that. Okay, uh huh. And you were, I guess, at that point, then you were back into being a wage earner for those three years. And correct, um, yeah, you don't, and, and also you don't have the authority, even though you're MD, you don't have the authority that same authority you had when you were a sole trader, where you could please yourself what you do really. Yeah, yeah. There's this saying, Mike, and I'm sure you've probably heard the saying, but once you've run your own business for, I can't remember, five years, 10 years, something like that, you're effectively almost unemployable because you know, it's so hard to march to someone else's tune. But you did that. So you managed to do it for three years. And it's one of the things that I talk to our clients about. And I think it's important to be aware of of if you're entering into an earnout period where you're required to keep turning up in order to extract that extra value out of the yeah. sale. It's just important to be aware from the beginning that the reality of it might be different to how it seems it might be in your head, which is not to say not to do it, but it's just important to go in wide, eyes wide open, I guess. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Isn't it just? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but, but it's only wonderful if you learn from it. That's that's absolutely true. You're so true, Mike. But in that three years, I was always yearning to have my own business. Yeah, again, again. <laughs> and and uh, there were certain elements of the business in Australia that weren't performing to the satisfaction of the Singaporeans. Right. And I distinctly remember being in Singapore for a board meeting and the MD up there saying to me, well, look, you sold me a pup in this business. And wow. I said, I'll, I'll buy it back. Oh, wow. And, and what I bought, happened? I bought it back. Oh, my goodness. For less than what you received? A lot less. Oh, my goodness. I bought the parts that I knew I could do something with in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the future as opposed to doing the similar things I did in the past. Oh, that is amazing. I love that. What a great story. And so that was, did you say that was three years after the sale? Yes, so that was that was 1999, just on the the cusp of uh, the dot-com. Yeah, right. 
and they and we had this uh, department which used to go around and monitor electrical machines. Mm-hmm. And I decided that if I got hold of that, we'd put that technology on the web in those early days. The World Wide Web back in 1999. That was that's <laughs> exactly right. It was a, it was a hype. Yeah. It was a hype and it sounded good and it really got everyone excited and uh, there were lots of VCs around. There was cash flowing mm. for the ideas and uh, so we set up a company mm-hmm. and, and uh, started a journey to develop a web-based machine management system for remote sites, maybe for remote mining sites and so on. I love that. And uh, the original thing is that we'd set an online community up where we'd bring the vendors who provided the service and customers together. But back there, there was so much suspicion around what the web was. Really? And that that we didn't get by. Right. You were too early. You're ahead of your time, clearly, Mike. Well, and the customers <laughs> weren't weren't quite ready to let you across their firewall yeah, and yeah. into their business. Mm. So so we had to wind that idea back and we set up a, a traditional high value consulting company around it because we couldn't get those other we, there were early adopters out there but the, the majority early majority weren't moving for us yeah right but we did get a vc right well that's it for part one of our three-part series all about a very interesting story of how our client mike davis went from zero to small business hero So that was part one of the three-part series. We're coming back in our next episode with part two of our three-part series, where we're looking at Mike's venture capital experience, the conflict and breakdown of relationships between shareholders, and how exiting the business affected Mike's life. So don't forget to tune in to part two of this three-part series. Well, that's all. If you'd like to find out more information about this topic, then head over to our website at www.thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to download a transcript of this episode if you'd like to read it in more detail. And there you'll also find details of how to contact Mike Davis. And of course, you'll also be able to find details of how to contact our legal eagles at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like any legal assistance in a deal. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, then don't forget to pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.